Thank you, thank you, team. Appreciate them. And the team is also those that you don't see. They are behind you, up above, making them sound good and giving us the visuals that you see. I'd like to welcome you back to Ephesians 6. And we're looking at just about 11 verses together today. We're going to be looking at a probably the chapter that people are most familiar with from this book. Uh, the spiritual warfare section of Ephesians 6 starts at uh, verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through verse 20. Let's just look at the first couple verses and then we'll, we'll go from there. Chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, starting at verse 10. I'm using a couple different translations. Let's see, this is New American Standard, NASB. I'm also using ESV. Hope I'm not being, I'm not trying to be confusing there, but just letting you know. So Ephesians 6, 10. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, human beings, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Go back to verse 11 for a moment. He says at the end, be, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, you wouldn't hear even that read in many places in American churches on a Sunday morning. There are a lot of churches, frankly, a lot of pulpits, and a number of Christians who would say, really, the devil? Do you believe in that myth? You're going to talk about evil forces? You're going to talk about mythology? You're going to talk about something that doesn't exist, something that's archaic, that people used to believe in? Some people laugh at the idea of a real personal being, called the devil or Satan. They find the concept of a little man in red underwear with a tail and horns a silly concept indeed. And of course, that concept isn't what the Apostle Paul's talking about, uh, a little man in red underwear with a tail and horns. But any number of churches in, in our great country and Christians included would distance themselves from the idea of a literal devil, the existence of, of an evil being by that name. We're not among those. And we don't apologize for that because we believe in the existence of a being known as Satan. And we believe that he has evil minions uh, called uh, demons that do exist. Now, we don't see a demon behind every door. We don't believe that uh, the devil is on any, uh, by any stretch of the imagination that he's uh, uh, equal or close to equal with, with God, that he's on par with him. But well-meaning good people would tell us that we should focus more on more serious subjects like poverty, injustice, world hunger. And to be truthful, those are very important, real subjects. They deserve urgent attention. They truly do. They need to be addressed. And yet ask yourself, friends, this question. If the real problems of this world are visible and material, and some of them are, how is it that they have not been solved and eliminated a long time ago? If all the problems in the world that we do see, if, if all of them were just the visible problems that we could deal with, that human beings could handle, could address, how is it that they're, they're still with us, that they've not been eliminated? You know, it was over 100 years ago that the well-known but rather cynical poet, 
a man named Charles Swinburne, declared that man is, quote, the master of everything, the master of things. Well, all right then. Let's see that. Let's see that borne out. If that is true, let him master everything. But we know that life is more complex than that. We know that man is not the master of everything. And if he isn't, and if it's evident that he isn't, then let humanity acknowledge that there are forces stronger than us that are at work behind what is visible. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why would you do that? Why would we need to be armed? For what battle? For what reason? That you may be able to stand. And the word stand is used four times here in this text. Stand against what? Against the schemes of the devil, the evil one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. They're unseen forces, the Apostle Paul says. Not, not the things that we see. Those aren't our highest or our worst enemies, but the things that we do not see. They are spiritual forces of evil that are in heavenly places. That's Ephesians six ten through 12. We are embattled on a regular basis. And I think sometimes we perceive it. I think sometimes we know that. We detect that to be true. And I think there are times that we don't pick up on it. We just don't perceive that, that we are embattled. Now, many, many years ago, as a young believer in my early 20s, I was a baby Christian at that point. I'd only known the Lord for a short time. And yet I knew enough about the Lord. It wasn't very much. But I knew enough to, to, to sense for the first time in my life that there is good and there is evil. I had just come to faith in Christ, and I knew what it meant to be forgiven. I knew what it meant to be alive to God in a new way that I had never known. I knew what it was like to feel clean and forgiven on the inside. And I remember as a student in college, as a junior in college, I remember going up to a, a looking for a private room in the, in the, on the campus in the library for a place to study, and I went up to the fourth floor of, of that great library on my college campus knowing that nobody studied up there and I could probably get a quiet place to go. So I went up to a, a quiet room and I found a study room. Nobody was up there, and I remember opening up a room. There was nobody in that room. But as soon as I opened up the door to that room, I could just feel this eerie spirit, just something strange overcame me, and my skin just crawled a little bit. I'd never sensed that before. I looked, and there was nobody in there. As I kept looking into the room, I noticed a couple of textbooks were on that long table towards the window at the end of the room, and so I walked into that room, opened up the books, or just flipped the books over. There were two different books on the subject of Satanism, and this heavy spirit in the room just wouldn't leave. Now, I was a baby Christian. I hadn't had any training or introduction on the subject of spiritual warfare. But I didn't run. I didn't leave. All I knew was that greater was he that was in me than he that was in the world. And so I said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, leave. And it did. And the room just resumed a normalcy of sense. There was just nothing there. And I took those books and I took them out of the room and I just set them out on some book return. I wanted to throw them away, but I didn't think I should do that. It was library property, you know. And I went back into the room and opened my books and I just sat down and studied. 
You know, sometimes we perceive something's amiss. You sense that. Sometimes you don't. But we are, we are embattled, friends. You know, years ago, when our family was real young, there were times in the middle of the night I'd be up for some reason, and I could just be walking through my house, and I could just perceive some fearful spirit in my house. Couldn't see it. Didn't know what it was even exactly, but I just felt afraid even a little bit. I thought, well, that isn't natural. I'm not going through anything circumstantially that I'm afraid of right now. I don't know what that is. So I just prayed. I just verbally just prayed, Lord, this is your house. Lord, you just, just protect us. I thank you, Lord, that you are greater than anything that could ever come against us. They were positive prayers. They weren't fearful prayers. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we pray in hope and we pray in confidence, not out of fear. Sometimes our fears of the devil, that he's bigger and greater and scarier than he really is, keep us from even doing battle. And we just want to run from that whole thing and get, we get too scared. You know, this passage that we're looking at is really a very positive passage. It's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to make you, oh, you know, get up tight and say, I don't think I want to study that. It's actually a very positive passage. It's, it's, it's showing you your, your identity in Jesus Christ. It's, Paul has, in the whole letter of Ephesians, has talked to you about how you have one foot already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He is showing you that you have authority that you would have never had if you or your life wasn't united to Jesus Christ. And he's saying now you just need to stand. You need to stand in who you are in Jesus Christ against the enemy of your souls. And he says, you know what? He will run. You see that throughout the New Testament. The Bible says elsewhere, I think it's in the book of James, resist the devil, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It doesn't say flee from the devil. It says resist him. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So let's be honest about the battle. We have to acknowledge that we're in a battle. The scriptures are acknowledging that we're in a battle. And really, we could step back for just a moment before we talk only about the spiritual battle John Piper makes a simple point that really all life is war. I want you to think about that briefly for just a moment. From the cradle to the grave, life has many fields of conflict, does it not? When you're young, school can be a conflict. Uh, just getting through school, that might be one of the first fields of conflict, getting through first grade or getting through sixth grade or junior high or, or algebra or what, what, whatever it is. Uh, getting through college or getting through the military, getting through, you, you name it, you fill in the blanks. But life has its various fields of conflict. Marriage is often sometimes, not sometimes, it is for all of us at times a field of conflict. Uh, family relationships, work, fields of conflict. All of life is war. And that's of course true in a spiritual sense as well. Piper says Satan will certainly give us no peace if we are at peace with God. Now, we didn't study the whole book of Ephesians, you know, verse by verse, because we just wanted to do a mini-series here. But if, you're, if your Bible's open to the book, you can just glance up from where we are. We're in six, chapter 6. Chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul has written just previously, of course, he's talked about family relationships. He's talked about Christian marriage. He's talked about harmony between brothers and sisters in the family of God in chapter 4 and chapter 5. 
Those are really positive subjects. How interesting that he ends the book, chapter 6, where we are today, on this rather stark subject. He's been, on, he's been on really positive subjects in the whole little letter to the Ephesians. He talks about our high position in Christ, what Jesus Christ has accomplished in bringing Jew and Gentile together, how, how, how we're seated with Christ together in the heavenly places, how we are one in Jesus and we're united and we can have harmony in, in, in our homes. But then he ends on this stark note of spiritual warfare. And I think he's making a very important point. He's saying we can have peace, friends, with God, with each other, in our families, but it's a vigilant peace because the evil one will attack it. Here and here and here and here and here. You have peace positionally in Jesus. It's your inheritance in Christ, but you've got to know what to do to hold on to it. You've got to guard it. You've got to put on the armor because you're going to get hit. You're going to get attacked. So be aware. That's what he's saying. Again, it's a positive passage. But it's a stark subject. We don't need to be afraid of it. But we just need to look at it for what it is. All of life is a war, isn't it? And we're not in a war, ultimately, with people, but with supernatural evil powers. You see that in verse 11, right? Look at what he says there expressly. Chapter 6, verse 11. I'm going old school here today. My Little iPad's running out of juice, so I'm looking back at the text in the Bible here. Let's see if I remember how to use it. Of course I do. I just have to look at the right chapter. For some reason, my Bible wants to stay in chapter 5. Verse 11 of chapter 6. Verse 11. No, verse 12. I'm sorry. Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He means human beings. That's what you and I are. We're flesh and we're blood. He says, your real struggles in life are not with human beings. Now, just, to, just go with me on this for a minute. That's an amazing statement for him to make. Because if you know anything about this guy's biography, you, you, you want to go, huh, really? You had all kinds of struggles, Paul, with human beings. You faced imprisonments, and you faced beatings, and you faced shipwrecks. You faced all kinds of stuff at the hands of people. And he would say, he wouldn't deny that, would he? Of course, he writes about it elsewhere. He would, he's not denying that here. But you know what he's saying? He's saying, over and above my struggles with human beings is a bigger war. It's the spiritual battle. There's a war behind all of that. There are forces behind what you see. And that's the battle I'm concerned about. That's the battle I want you dear people to know about. That's the battle I really want you to be aware of and to stand firm in, in protecting your, your heart from. That's important for you and I to see that. So we don't just engage life as a is a mess, if you will, of thinking, oh, it's about conflicts with people. It's not. Not ultimately. It's never about that. It's about, it's about what's going on behind the scenes that we don't see. How might the evil one be using difficulties in our lives to, to manipulate things to hurt us? And I, what I love about that, too, is it makes us keep a right heart towards people and not get upset with people. We should get upset with the evil one. He's the real enemy. People are not. The evil one is. He's at war with us. He's trying to get us to, to hurt one another and to, to hurt ourselves. Please see that for what Paul is saying. We are, we are we, excuse me, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Quite a statement. But we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, and cosmic powers. Again, we don't see them. They're invisible to us. Now, we wouldn't be told about those forces if they posed no threat to us. We wouldn't be told about them. Third, third item, there's a danger of falling in that battle against these rulers, these authorities, and their powers. The devil does not work alone. He has power branches, if you will. But let's be really clear on a big point here. 
Satan is not a spiritual counterpart to God, meaning he's not on equal footing. I, I hope you already knew that today, but I believe you did. I hope you did. He's not, he's not on equal footing. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not omnipresent, everywhere present. He's not omniscient, all-knowing, and yet he is a formidable foe, and we're foolish if we think he can be resisted in human strength alone, if we think we can outsmart him. He has studied human humanity for millennia. I believe he knows our weaknesses. I believe he does. Now, I don't believe he's everywhere present again because the Bible says that much. We know that, the things we just looked at briefly. But he does, he does have evil forces. He has minions. And I believe those demons know uh, our tendencies. They, he knows how to tempt us and to weaken us. And he's organized. He's got some kind of a structure that he knows how to trip us up. And I believe he's very patient in, in waiting to tempt us and to cause us to, to fall. And let's be honest, he succeeds. He succeeds at ruining marriages. And he succeeds at causing people financial troubles. And he succeeds at doing a lot of bad things in this world, at taking people that may, maybe even have a legitimate illness of some kind and causing them to do some terrible thing. He succeeds in a lot of things because the armor's not up. Because Christians maybe are unguarded. There's, there's a great danger of falling in this battle. I think the best biblical illustration I can give you of that is go back in, in biblical history to the, to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve, before their fall into sin, they were in perfect union with God. They didn't have any sin in them. So they were, they were in a, a more enlightened place in their awareness of God than we are right now as Christians. They were in great relationship with God, harmony with God, and yet the devil deceived them. How wily is he? That's pretty wily. Are we going to defeat him? Not easily. Not in our own strength, we're not. He's that crafty. He's that wily. And so Paul is urging the believer to say, stand firm. Put on your spiritual armor that the Lord has given you so you can see his, his ways. You can be aware of how he works. When our crafty enemy strikes, let me make a few simple observations. And when a person freshly comes to Jesus, a newly converted Christian, whether that person's a child or an adult or adolescent, whatever, uh, he, he attacks a person's newfound faith and accuses them. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. When somebody comes to faith in my office, I often, the first thing I want to do is assure, give them assurances of salvation. I give them verses to hold on to and say, look at this verse this week, read this verse, read this verse. And it's verses on assurance of salvation, those kinds of passages. Because I know the enemy is going to try to trick them into thinking the first time they make a big mistake, the first time they get angry or the first, and, and, and yell at somebody or do this or do that, they're going to feel like, uh-oh, I blew it. Am I still a Christian? Did I lose my salvation? The enemy will lie to them and tell them those kinds of things. Satan does that to new, to new Christians. He says, oh, you can't be a Christian. Look what you just did. Look how you blew up at that person. Look how you, you, you misstepped over here. God doesn't love you anymore. He can't forgive you of that. And so he, he lies. He tricks them. Or when a believer is afflicted, then, it, then it's easy for, a person to, for Satan to come in and say, see, God doesn't really love you. you you've, you've apparently disappointed him. He doesn't care for you anymore because look what you're going through. If God really loved you, you, know, you wouldn't be going through this. Isn't that what happened in essence in the story of Job? Job goes through this affliction that was a test. But his own wife came up to him and said, give up your integrity. Curse God and die. She just said, just give up on this. And so, and that wasn't the right response. He said, woman, 
Shall we not accept difficulty from God? Should we only accept good things? And he just said, you know, you're talking like a foolish woman. He had wisdom. When the believer has achieved some notable success, success can be dangerous. We could preach a small sermon on that, but I won't today. When the believer is idle, I think we know the, the truth of that without me probably saying too much about it. It's good to, good to have our hands busy at good things. Otherwise, we can, we can uh, fall into trouble. If the devil finds a man inactive, he will soon find him some work to do. <laughs> and when the believer's isolated, that's a real big one there. If, God, if Satan can get us alone, if we get real isolated, we are very, very, very vulnerable. If we lose the fellowship of close Christians, if Satan can get you to hang out with the wrong crowd long enough, to where you're more comfortable with that crowd than you are with the Christian crowd, he's got you where he wants you. Because pretty soon you're going to pick up on the values and the, the goings-on of that crowd, and Satan's going to say, see, you can, you can have more fun over here. This is really where you want to be. And pretty soon you're just going a whole new direction, and you're getting comfortable with that. And, and, and the things of, of God's will for your life are just getting thinner and bleaker and distant, and you're good with it. You're fine with it. Very dangerous. Very scary. Don't get isolated. From, from, from God's people. Don't allow that to happen in your heart. That's where Satan wants it to go. It's where he wants you to go. When a believer's dying, Satan can come in there and sow doubt and, and cause fear. That's a very weak time in our lives. Usually people die in a place of great fragility, unless it comes real suddenly through an accident or something. Death is often very difficult and slow for many people, and it's sad. And, and the evil one doesn't give up on being the evil one until, until he gets his last little grasp at people, and we go off into glory. He's just that wicked. Fourthly, God has made provision for us to stand, and that's where the passage takes us. So we're to put on the whole armor of God. We come back to verse 10. And again, we see the words uh, um, stand four times as we jump back into this passage, and we begin to unpack it. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What does the armor look like? These are just metaphors, right? And he uses the word belt. Uh, there's not, there's not some belt that you've got to go buy at the Christian bookstore. Oh, I've got to get the belt of truth here. Uh, but I want you to see the word, truth. Well, what truth would Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles be talking about? What truth would he be referring to? There's really just two clear interpretations you could take from that. He's talking about the objective truth of Christianity and or the truth of the believer's integrity and faithfulness. And I would propose they really are, are, are uh, hand in glove. They're together. He's talking about both. He's saying, hold on to the truth of the faith of Christianity. And if you, if you have the truth of Christianity, which he's writing to believers, so they have it. You and I have it, if you're a Christian here today. Then he's saying, then live your life on that truth. Have an integrity, a consistency with that, and a faithfulness to that truth. Live in truth. That's really what he's saying. Live your life in the truth of who you are in Christ. His whole letter to the Ephesians has been about your identity in Jesus Christ, who you are in him. He said, you used to be a part of the kingdom of darkness, now you're part of the kingdom of light. He's saying, live in that kingdom. Live according to who you are, not who you once were, but who you now are. And you're, you're, you're holding onto the armor right there. Hold the belt of truth on you. Live according to your identity, and you're already holding armor in place. Don't live according to who you used to be. That's dropping your belt. That's just being too loosey-goosey. Don't let go of who you are. Hold on to your identity, the truth of who you are. When I walked into that library room that day, I didn't know a lot about who I was as a Christian, but I knew I was a different person than I used to be. And I thought, whatever's in here is not on my side. Whatever is in here is against me. Whatever is in here is an antichrist type spirit, and it's going to leave because it's weaker than Jesus. And it's going to leave. 
And you just have to, you have that authority in Christ, and so you make it leave. Satan is powerless to defeat believers who trust in and live according to Christ's righteousness. That's the next piece here is this breastplate of righteousness. Again, it's a metaphor, right? It's a, it's a breastplate. The word there that you, the, to, to really take home is righteousness. Well, what is that? It is practical righteousness. We have an imputed righteousness that we have from God. We don't have any righteousness of our own, right? We know that. But we have, when, we, when, we, when we receive Jesus, we have his, the gift of his perfect righteousness. That's why we can go to heaven. We have his perfect righteousness given to us. Now we're called to live out a righteous life, not a perfect life, because we're not capable of that. But we should sin less and less if we're growing in Jesus, right? Right? We shouldn't say, I'm, I've got Christ's righteousness, so now I can sin more and more. That's not the idea. If you think that, read Romans 6, and Paul will set you straight. But it's a practical righteousness. And if you want to resist the devil and have your armor in place and not have chinks in your armor, then walk in practical righteousness. Try to do the right thing. Try to live a righteous life. You won't live a perfect life. I'm not saying that because we can't. But a lack of that is what gets you in trouble. A lack of holiness, on the other hand, leaves us vulnerable to the great enemy of our souls. If we knowingly do things that we shouldn't do, that we know God has freed us from, God has set us free from or convicted us of in the past and we run back to them, we give Satan a foothold. We're opening up chinks in the armor. You know, the, the proverb says, if a, it says a, a dog that returns to his vomit is what a fool does who returns to his folly. I use the analogy and somebody told me after the first services helped him. I said, some of us, we can be pig pen Christians. <laughs> God frees us up. He gets us out of a pig pen. He cleans us up, and, and we run back to the pig pen. And we just start indulging in things that, that we used to do that he cleaned us up from, he delivered us from. But we, if we run back to that, we are going to give ourselves things that the devil will shame us with and guilt us with and hurt us with. He will. And so put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's just it's saying, live, live by the grace of God to the best of your ability in his word and follow his righteousness. And, and that's, again, in the strength that he provides, right? Satan's powerless to stop the spread of the gospel of peace. This is the longest uh, chain of words, the uh, longest sentence in this short passage. Kind of complicated to take it apart, but I think the clearest meaning, and I, I don't have any question of this personally, I think the meaning of it is simple. Paul is saying, and I'll, I'll break it really way down. I think it's a simple meaning, really. He says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, what does that mean? Well, what do you do with shoes? You put them on. I'm not shoeless here today. I got shoes on. Uh, one of the worship members was saying he liked my shoes. I don't know why. I think they're just normal shoes, but anyway, sorry. It's, <laughs> shoes. What do you do with you, when you put your shoes on? You, you walk with your shoes. You get around, right? You don't put them on just to stand still and do nothing. You... you place. Paul says if you have the gospel, if you know Christ, and the Ephesians do Christ, they had the gospel. If you are in Christ, you have the gospel. You go places with it. You go somewhere. You proclaim it. That's what he says. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, he's saying go with the gospel. If you have the gospel of peace in your heart, now share it. Don't sit on it. Don't just kick your shoes off and stand around and, oh, I'm so glad I'm saved and I'm going to go to the sky while they fry. Don't, don't think that way. Don't act that way. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, you better turn or, or, or you're going to burn. No, you, you don't do that. You put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and you go out and you share hope with people in the name of Jesus. 
And when you, the very act of doing that really is, a, is an act of obedience because God calls us to go with the gospel. And when we do that, spiritual protection is on us. Armor plating is on us. God goes with his people when we share the gospel. Oh, Satan hates that. He's powerless against it. When we go out with the gospel, it can be kind of scary, right? You ever do that? You go door to door, or you're just sharing your faith with a friend, or it gets kind of scary. Isn't it also very exhilarating? Doesn't it just kind of get you pumped? Because you just feel the wind of the Spirit kind of flowing through you at times. It's not a feeling, but you know what I'm saying? It's like you feel the joy of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about. Saying you have Christ, you put on your gospel shoes, you get walking, and God's that obedience brings his protection over you. That's the context here. God's with you in that. Don't be disobedient. When you have the good news, you share it. You bring it to people. And that's part of the armor, is going out there. When the Roman soldiers put on their sandals, they actually, some of them actually had nails that went through their sandals to give them traction as they went into battle. They had a purpose in having those nails that went through their leather sandals. They didn't just wear sandals to stand around. They were going into battle. And Paul is saying, you've got these gospel shoes on, you go. And God goes with you. And his protection is over you as you're bringing his gospel to people. It's just, it's just awesome. So moving along, moving along. If my screen will let me. The believer's basic trust in God will defeat Satan's temptation. So look at this one. So verse 16. In, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The evil one, Satan, is, is, the, is the tempter. He knows how to tempt us individually. I, I do believe that. A lot of our temptations, some of them come from within us, right? We have a fallen nature, and we can be tempted but by many different things. But Satan knows how to, our trigger points. He can put different temptations before us. And, and we are to put the shield of faith up. For a Roman soldier, his, he had two different shields. He had a small one for close-in battle. He had a big one, a big one, for, for as they would engage big battles. And you've heard of the, the, the Roman, let's see if I say it right, the the, the Phalanx? Am I saying it right? Phalanx? Phalanx? I can't say that word for some reason. But they, those were big shields. And when they would get those down, they were like this. They'd cover up their whole body. And when they were all united like this, you could get nothing through those. That, that, you'd put all those soldiers together. It was a big Roman set of, of not just breastplates anymore, but big shields. And the enemy would shoot their arrows, shoot everything, and nothing's going to hit them. And they would advance and advance and advance. That's the image here. Paul says, put it down. Hold on there. Get, there, get behind it. And when Satan starts to throw those things in, they just, they just glance off of your big, your, your big shield. That's the picture here. Have faith that God is greater than those little temptations. God will deliver you. God is, don't believe the lies that Satan is sending in through those temptations. This, we could preach a sermon on each of these, couldn't we? But we don't have the opportunity to do that. And then the helmet of salvation. In warfare, we know that the head is the major target in battle. Well, Satan can't take away the believer's salvation. And so this reference to putting on your helmet of salvation isn't about, you better wear this or you're going to lose your salvation. I believe it's an assurance that even though I believe we're going to lose some battles in spiritual warfare, we're going to lose some fights. We're going to lose some ground at times because our enemy's relentless. We're going to see some bad, bad things happen to us at times because Satan's relentless. We can remember that God has still saved us, that we are going to be with him in glory forever. The helmet that we wear is really an assurance. It's a, not a physical helmet, obviously, but it's, it's a metaphor again. But it's a reminder here that, that we are saved 
to the uttermost. We are saved for the King. We will be with him in glory. Jesus Christ has saved us to the uttermost. So even when we we hit failures in this life, we are still children of the King. And we can keep on serving. We can fight another day. We can get up and go again. When life has beat us down, when we've lost some battle to the enemy, let's face it, we do lose some battles. We get up and we say, Lord, you've given me this helmet of salvation. It doesn't come off. It stays on me. I'm going to fight. I'm going to serve. I'm going to keep standing. I'm not going to give up. And then we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, verse 17. And this is a different reference to the Word than we see in many places in Scripture. Most New Testament words for the Word is the word in Greek, logos, such as in John 1 and other places. Here in verse 17, the word is rima in the Greek language, and it, it means something different. It means a particular part of Scripture, not just the Word of God as a whole, but a particular reference to it. And I'll illustrate it very briefly. Jesus himself used a particular part of Scripture when Satan assaulted him. And the reference point for that is Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. When the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, and Jesus quoted an Old Testament passage, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus took a particular piece of Scripture and he answered the tempter. And that's what Paul is saying that we need to do in verse 17 of Ephesians 6. He says, don't just throw the Bible at the devil. Oh, the word of God says you're defeated. He says, when when you sense something is coming your way that is tempting you, causing you to doubt, or or tempting you to, to doubt, or tempting you to sin, tempting you in whatever way, bring particular scripture to bear on that, and it'll set you straight. It'll counter it. That's what Jesus does in every in every example of where Satan was hitting him. Jesus used a particular scripture and hit it back every single time with accuracy. What does that infer or imply? You have to know it. You got to have it. And so I hope that this is an important part of your life. Too many of us know more about box scores and team stats and all kinds of other things than we know about this. I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. It's great to know all kinds of trivial things. It's nothing wrong with that. But don't know that stuff better than you know this. Because Satan's not really beat up by that stuff. Hey, Satan, you want to know the box score for for this team? Is that going to stop him? That's not going to roll him. But this will. I I say that in all seriousness. It's kind of to be cute, but but to be real. You're not going to beat him up with, with anything but this. But if you got this and you're ready with it, he can't take much of this and he's going to run. And then the last piece we have here is prayer. Again, I, I wish I had a whole message here to give you on this, but Paul puts prayer really as the spiritual cherry on top. He says, praying, then give yourselves to this, friends. He says, praying at all times, not just regimented times at a meal time or here or there. Be a person who prays at all times. And doesn't this call all of us forward? from where we are to another level. Praying at all times, so put that into context, in your car, in your bed, in your home, in your office. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So pray for 
Pray for, that's all the body of Christ, all the saints. Pray for people you don't even know, the persecuted church. Pray for missionaries. Pray for uh, other churches. And also for me, Paul says, pray for me too, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What a selfless prayer. He doesn't say, pray that my chains come off. He says, no, pray that my mouth may continue to, to preach Jesus. Well, nuclear wars cannot be won with rifles. We cannot win spiritual battles with human strength and strategy. Prayer and petition are mentioned here four times. So let's put down our little rifles or pea shooters if that's what we're trying to win the victories with. It's prayer and it's armor. And you've got it all already right here in front of you. Put it on, apply it, and let's go to work for the king and watch the kingdom expand by his grace. Father, thank you for the power, for the equipment, for the hope of our calling. Thank you that you've defeated the devil, we just, but we have to apply the, the good weapons that are at our disposal. We've got to stand in the strength that you've provided. We've got to su- support each other. We've got to love each other. We've got to work together. We've got to, we've got to fight together. Lord, let the evil one lose any territory that he's trying to claim in our lives right now. Lord, may you beat him back right now. May we let go of any lie that we've maybe held on to that he's trying to hold us with. May we live in truth and hold to the truth and help each other live in truth and hold to the truth. May we live in truth always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.